Amen. Thanks, Johnny. Yeah, everyone can see me? Fair enough? It does look pink out of these lights, I must admit. If you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of Psalms and then Psalm or song number 39. If you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our ushers would love to come and bring you um, a Bible. And if that's your first Bible, we'd really love for you to keep that Bible um, because it's been our practice since day one to really go through the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's Word and uh, we need to hear from it. And so uh, the book of the book number 39 or Psalm number 39 is about halfway in whatever Bible you have and I want to read it out for us. Psalm 39, if you, if you have an app, you can do that as well. If you don't, just listen along. It's titled, What is the Measure of My Days? I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breadth. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is God's word for us. That's an uplifting little psalm, isn't it? In case you didn't notice, it's uh, lament, and laments are muses or meditations or considerations of what is commonly been called a dark period of life. They're general. If you see the title above the psalm, you'll see that it's of David to the choir master, and so you know that this is a, a song actually. Uh, these are the lyrics of the song. That's where we get the title for our series. Uh, we don't have the music, but I'm guessing that the music would probably have a few minor tones. Um, it'd probably come out of a place like Seattle and be really dark and dreary and heavy because that's the content of the song. No disrespect to Seattle. My mom's actually from there. But it's helpful because it's general enough in that it really gives us a picture of human life. We're just, as we were praying before the message, we were saying, you know, many of us are looking forward to some summer vacation, some time off, some time away from our work, maybe some time away from our families. Some of you, right? 
Anyone? You're like, I need a vacation for my family. That's what I really need. Okay, no one's bold enough to say that. I used to say that theoretically. It's funny how problems never leave us. We don't get a vacation from our pain. We don't get a vacation from our suffering. We don't get a vacation from feeling discouraged. That seems to follow us around no matter where we go. And so I think in a, in a very real sense, we can relate. What I've done throughout this series is we've been choosing psalms of all different kind of genres. And a genre is just the type of kind of way it's written. It helps give us a reading strategy for the way that we read it. Uh, we shouldn't read this like every other part of our Bible, even though we should always take it seriously. We take it uh, in, in a slightly different way. We read it in a slightly different way. We have a different strategy toward it because of the way it is. It's poetry. It's intended, poetry is intended to kind of grab us with all these images, and there's all kinds of images in here. Essentially what this psalm is about is, is the, the author um, is, is lamenting his life. And one of the characteristics of laments is it's not linear in thought. Right? Many of us are linear thinkers. Just give me the basics. Tell me where I'm going. Tell me how this. Some of you are circular thinkers. Um, if you're a linear thinker, you just, you're like, okay, you listed off two. Where's the third one, right? But laments typically don't follow this circular, nice, neat, rational thought. They're all over the map, just like we are, especially with our emotions, right? You ever get so mad about something and you start arguing and you're like halfway through, you're like, man, if I had thought through this a little bit better, I would start off with point two instead of point one. Right? You get halfway through your argument, maybe you've seen it, you've, you've been playing a sport or a game of some kind and you think you have this great argument and you go so fast and you're like, this isn't really very rational, the way I'm arguing here, but I'm halfway in it now, I've got to keep going. This is kind of what happens to the psalmist. Is he's, he's struggling through uh, his own silence. He's frustrated. He's trying to figure things out. He's really quiet. He's trying to hold it back. I'm sure you can't relate to that, right? Where you're just like, ooh, I just, I just want to say one thing. I just want to say one thing. But he knows that if he does, he's going to have problems. And then as he begins to voice his displeasure about his situation and what's going on, he begins to just talk through and he begins to realize some things. He actually gains wisdom throughout the psalm. He begins to kind of figure out what even he should pray for. And then he ends up understanding that without God, it doesn't matter what I think or how I feel. Without God, I have no hope. And he recognizes his own sin and recognizes his own fault, and he recognizes his own limitations, and he recognizes what God has been teaching him through. Now, unlike a lot of Psalms that end on a really high note, this one doesn't. It basically ends by saying, don't look at me, God. Hold your hand away from me. It doesn't end on a note of hope, which is where many of us end up being. And so this morning, we're going to talk about meditating on our on and in our silence. We're going to talk about meditating on our limitations. And we're going to talk about meditating on our hope. The reason why I said meditate is because in verse 3 there, you see it says, as I mused. That word muse is often found in the Psalms, often found in wisdom literature in the Bible. And it just is kind of a, kind of a universal word for like think deeply. Actually, the real uh, Hebrew word there to describe is to mutter under your breath. 
to think through things, to talk it out personally. And so let's go through these. Meditating in silence. The, the entire psalm really begins very abruptly, but it's the abruptness that makes it so human. So many times we have these arguments in our head, these emotional arguments in our head. And so you can hear him kind of speaking, I will guard my ways. I said, I will do this. You ever get up in the morning, you're like, okay, I'm going to work out every day for the next three months. And then the next day you're like, okay, every other day for the next two months. And then you're like, every week at least once, right? He, he, he talks this way, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I don't know about you, but this is my issue. I talk or I think while talking. You're like, surprise. Some of you don't do that. So you can't necessarily relate to that. But he said, I, if I open my mouth, I'm going to say something stupid. Anyone feel, ever feel like that? It is like, if I say anything right now, um, I will get my foot in my mouth. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. He'll put a mask over top of his mouth. He says, there's evil people all around me and they're, they're pestering me and they're bothering me and they're bugging me about my own sin and they're saying things like, where's your God? I mean, we don't really know a whole lot about these psalms. You know, when you look at the commentaries on these psalms and the scholars, what they look, they have no idea what the problem is. None of them. All of them are like, well, it could be this or it could be that. It could be this or it could be that. They're so general, but that helps us. That doesn't hinder us. It helps us. Because there are times when everyone seems to be against us, right? You ever felt that in a group? You're just like, no one understands what it's like to be me. No one gets me. I was mute in silence. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. It didn't get better for me. It got worse. My heart became hot within me. I don't know if you're one of these peoples, but this, this is what happens to me. I get flushed in the face when I get agitated with what someone has said. Okay? Watched a baseball game this weekend. Got flushed in the face. Did not like what the umpire was doing in the game. I was getting hot. I was like, I got to text somebody who, who understands this. Texted my friend. Worst umpire I've ever seen in my life. Oh, that feels better. Just get that. I don't know why. You're like, what an idiot. I know. But it's hot within us. That happens in all kinds of different places. We get frustrated and it gets hot within us. We got to say something. And as I mused, as I meditated, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue and proved everyone right. Continued to make a mistake. You know, it's interesting, this idea of silence and meditating in silence because it seems to be a common theme. As a pastor, I actually have a great privilege to be privy to many conversations about the deep things of people's lives. I consider it a great honor. One of the most common questions I get is, where is God? Where is God? How come he won't show up? A couple weeks ago, we spoke at length at this on another lament about this waiting, about this silence. I think we can all relate to feeling distant from God at some point in our life. This particular psalm helps us because it says this is a point in our life where God really wants to begin to speak to us. Not to break the silence, 
But the silence begins to be used in our own life to vocalize, at least internalize, the things that we really think. And this grates really against our culture. I don't know if you face this, but I do. This idea of ADD, this idea of like multitasking. The latest research says that multitasking is bad. Good, I wonder how much they paid for that research. We've got all these voices going on. We don't think. We don't have much silence in our lives. And therefore, we're not able to reflect a lot on our own situations. And some of the reason why we try even to have different variants and quieter things on Sunday mornings is because this perhaps is some of the only place you have a chance to think about what you think about God. You can see this come out in the text. He's holding it back. He wants to say something. It's burning within him. And yet he knows that really he's got nothing to offer. I want to encourage you to ask the question, what is God saying to you in the silence? What are you thinking about? What's surfacing? In fact, I actually want to pay attention to the text and say, take the next 30 seconds. Let's just have some silence here while the other church is singing at the top of their lungs. Let's have some quiet here. And just think about this very question. What has God been saying to me in the silent moments of my life? The author moves on. And he begins to vocalize. And as he begins to gain wisdom, he actually has some fairly wise words for us. He begins to meditate on his limitations. You know, this, this idea of limitations is very interesting because he spends three verses talking about his limitations, and there's some really powerful images here. Oh Lord, make me know my end. He's asking for the date of the end of his life. He's asking for God to remind him that he's going to die. What is the measure of my days? How many days do I have left? And let me know how fleeting I am, he says. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths. We don't use that word anymore. Handbreaths, I don't think. But it, it's, it's basically hand wits. I think this author feels like life for him is really, really big. It's like a mile long. It's like a kilometer long. In reality, it's only four, four finger wits. So teach me to know my limitations. This is such an interesting prayer as he begins to pray because I think we, we face this immediately because our culture does ne never preaches us that. 
Our culture constantly reminds us, or at least tries to remind us, that there are no limits. This is why this is so hard for us to get. Have you noticed that? If you look at the advertising, if you look at the slogans of our culture, they say you can do anything you want to do if you just put your mind to it. They say no limits on what your imagination can think up. Expand your horizons, grow bigger, dream big. Our culture is constantly telling us that we're too, we think too small. And here the author actually prays the opposite way. Teach me how small I really am. I think this is why we probably need some silence in our life. We're one of the only cultures that, that as an individualistic culture, we just have a sense in which it's really all about us. And we, we're the center of our own universe and we're offended and frustrated when someone says, look, you're not the only one here. I mean, we're going to be going on a trip in a couple of hours on our vacation. Hooray. Hooray. Come on. Some of you are awake. And I'm sure one of the slogans we're going to have to repeat over and over again is it's not about you. But here's the text teaching us in reality Remind me, God, that it's not about me. Immediately, we don't like this. Like, I I came here for some, like, positive thinking, like, make more of me. Here's what the text is reminding us. We're actually pretty small. No matter how much we think our limits are, we have them. That there is a sense in which maybe we think too much of ourselves. Maybe the part of the problem why we're so frustrated and the things aren't happening on our own time is, is God simply trying to warn us and say, you know, you know I, I want you to recognize that, that this world does not center in on your life. I want you part of it. Yes, he does. It's very obvious that he doesn't push back when the author begins to just pray There's no real response here that that this is Scripture. This isn't just like someone's experience. That God wanted people to know that it was okay to speak to God, but he also wanted them to say, just listen to yourself, talk it out. I think that's what happens for us sometimes is as we begin to pray, as we begin to vocalize, God, why won't you do this for me? And then we go like, I'm one of like seven billions, eight now, bills nearing there, eight billion people in the world at this time, and you're listening to me, and yet why won't you revolve the universe around me? He says, teach me that. I mean, his observations are simply, my time is pretty short, and my wealth is pretty limited. So I have a certain number of days, basically somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 years, 90, 95 if you're healthy, it seems, but sometimes it doesn't matter. We know we've all experienced really healthy people who have gotten sick and have been taken from us far too early. So some days are less than others. 
It says, my wealth is pretty limited. At best, you can only pass it on to someone else. You don't take it with you. Like it gets left behind because someone else uses it and someone else will use it. This is kind of a reality check for this, this believer in God. Your wealth is limited. No matter how good you are at making it, no matter how good you are at storing it, your time is limited. No matter how good you are at using it, no matter how well you've made use of it, it's limited. It says, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. Sorry, that's the, the wrong one. Surely all mankind... All mankind or all people stand as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. It's like an empty shirt. (laughs) Surely for nothing there in turmoil, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Someone else will take your wealth. I know it sounds pretty dark and dreary, right? It is a lament, so I'm following along with the text here. In some senses, we've all felt some of these things, I think. And while it's not the only solution to what we're thinking, perhaps this is helpful to us, a a dose of reality. You know, I enjoy sports. I talk about sports quite regularly as an example. One of the interesting things is that sports in the heat of the moment seems just like another world. And then somebody gets hurt and all of the players drop to one knee and they always say, the commentators always say, oh, a dose of real life just set in. And we realize that this is just only a game. I think that's the moment for this author. He's going through life and things aren't working the way he wants them to. An injury, so to speak. A spiritual injury of some kind. Something's been taken from him. Something's a result of his sin. And he will recognize that. This is the moment where he drops to the knee. And God says, little dose of reality here, don't you think? You're not the center of the universe. I know, it sounds strange to even say this out loud sometimes. My children are part of a school where they tell them the complete opposite. This is why I strongly believe we need God's word and we need these kinds of laments to draw us out and to remind us of reality. So I ask you to take some time to meditate again. And ask yourself the question, how is God teaching me about my days? My wealth.
One of, the, one of the things that happens, and to illustrate this, one of the things that happens so often, especially during the summer season, is a lot of us head out to the mountains. And my younger brother uh, often reminds me that one of the reasons why he goes out to the mountains is to feel small. I don't know if you feel that way. To feel like you're a small piece of a bigger picture. If you're standing next to a mountain, it's very hard to be arrogant toward that mountain, to think you can conquer it. I don't know if you ever try to climb mountains, but you're at the mercy of the weather patterns and the, the height of the mountains. And if you know what you're doing out there, you will say, respect the mountain. That's what I've been told. For me, one of the ways that I muse and meditate on my smallness is I actually enjoy putting on my headphones. I put onto a soundtrack. Obviously, it sounds like I'm walking through a movie if I put on a soundtrack. And I walk downtown. One of the re reasons why is just the grandeur of the buildings, the size of the corporations around, the amount of people, important people around who have no idea who I am. It wouldn't care who I was. It would have no impact on their life. It just brings a dose of reality and reminds me that I am not a big person in a small world. I'm a very small person in a very big world. And then I think of the other cities that I've visited. And then I think of the other countries that I've visited. And it reminds me I am a very small part of this. It's helpful. It's a reality check. I would encourage you this summer to spend some time considering what the author is trying to teach us. To teach us to number our days. Teach us our place. Teach us how simple our life really is. But actually the author does not spend just his time asking for things. He simply moves to the third point which is Meditating on his hope. Now, some of you would say, some authors say, like, or some commentators say, this doesn't end very positively, and, and that is true. But there is a sense in which, as the author has prayed this out, as the author has considered his own silence, as the author has considered his own smallness, he basically says, what else do I have? Verse 7, it says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. So you begin to see him vocalizing. Look, I know that some of the reason why I'm in this situation is that God is disciplining me. I have sinned against God and he's trying to teach me something. I mean, we're, we live in such an innocent society. It's never our fault. God is always the problem and we are the answer. And this is the author saying, no, that's not the case with me. In fact, that may be the reason why he was so tentative to say anything to begin with. Because I know, I know I have issues, right? We've done this to other people. Look, I know this isn't, I haven't cleaned up this issue in my own life, but I've really got some advice for you. And the author knows that. And he begins to recognize that. And so you see this kind of back and forth, like, would you just, I know you have to discipline me, but can you stop? I know you have to teach me some things, God, but would you just hold off? In your grace and your mercy? 
You know, as I've disciplined my children, I hear this kind of response all the time. Look, Dad, I know you need to do what you got to do, and I know this hurts you more than it hurts me, but, but would you please, like, maybe a little bit less discipline? This is what the author's saying. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man that's basically a person with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. You take the things away from them that they love. Some of you feel like this. We've all felt like this. A lot of people who have loved ones, and they will couch when, when someone, loved one, is passed away, they will respond by saying, that person was taken away from me. That's what he's saying. I know you have to discipline me, but can you hold off? And at the end, he just says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace in my tears. I am a, a sojourner or a journeyer with you, a guest like all my fathers. I'm not on this. He, he's almost like a, a resident alien on the earth is how he's considering himself. Legally imported. He said, I'm just here for a, a short time. So help me. Please hear my prayer. I know that's how I felt. And I know it's very likely that you felt like that as well. Look away from me. Please. Please take your discipline away. And so there's two things that kind of jump out. Number one is the recognition that at times, this isn't punishment for sin, but it's discipline for sin. This is where we need a clear understanding of the gospel to make sense of all this. Some, some of us hear that word gospel and we think that the gospel is there just to mop up all of our messes. Let me tell you what the gospel is if you're brand new. The gospel is what God has done for you, not what you do for God. Christians do not believe that they earn their way to God's favor. They believe that God's favor to them is freely given and by believing in God revealed in Jesus that we receive a pardon for our sins not the punishment for disobedience. And some would say that means that God eliminates also some of the consequences and yet that's not true. Sometimes there are consequences for our sin that we spend the rest of our lives with. For those who choose to sin in certain ways, even though there is forgiveness of sins, there isn't the elimination of some of the pain and heartache that comes because of forgiveness. Yes, guilt-free, absolutely. God pardons us like a judge completely pardons someone who has broken the law and says, you are free from this penalty. But there's other things. There's consequences. Maybe there's scars. Maybe there's broken relationships. And some of us feel like God's discipline has gone on long enough. God, you have forgiven me. So why do I still feel this? 
because he's God and we're not. Listen carefully to what another writer says. We're not totally sure who the author is of the book of Hebrews, but it's a great letter and it reminds us that God's discipline is not a result of punishment and it's not punitive in nature. It's not intended to punish us for our sins. It's intended to draw us back closer to God and remind us of who's actually in control. Listen to what the author says. There were some frustrated Christians at this time who were, who were frustrated they have to keep going. They're being encouraged to keep going. Hang in there. Keep fighting. And this is what the author says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? Because the gospel actually is a story of adoption. And God chooses to adopt people into his family and pays for their sins. It's the gospel. And we are not considered slaves to God. We're considered sons and daughters of God. This is good news. But listen to what he says about sons. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son or my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him or corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline or her father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Here's a key verse. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us because he loves us. And because he loves us, he's wanting to train us to be his children and to understand who he is. And there is a place for discipline in our lives. Just like there is a place for discipline in in a good family life. Some of you haven't had very good family life. And I'm guessing it's because of an abuse of discipline or a misuse of discipline or a lack of discipline. Is you don't know what this looks like, and so it's frustrating. You want to rail against it. But I'll tell you what will help correct this. Walk into Walmart sometime and watch the lack of discipline and see how loving it looks. I know for me, I'm like, I didn't think I was that much of a disciplinarian until I went into Walmart, and then I found out I am a raving disciplinarian, a raging disciplinarian. I'm like... I clearly understand how to discipline as soon as I walk into that place. It seems very unloving to just let your children just wander 
It interferes with all kinds of people's lives. It's not helpful in any way to the society, in my opinion. My humble opinion, I guess. But some of us, this is our response to God's discipline to us. We think that because God loves us, it means we should be free to just rove around and do whatever we want. And that God should come to our rescue. And you've seen these families where the children run the family and the parents do whatever the children say. It's not great. It's not a great situation. It's not a long-term situation. But as children, we need to hear this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Seems painful. Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So are you receiving the discipline of God in your life? Because of the gospel, we have been made sons and daughters of the Most High God. And because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, we will receive discipline because He loves us. He cares for us. He is training us to love Him more. He is is training us to seek Him more. And again, from my personal experience, that when I have been part of disciplining the children in my own family, they're actually drawn to me. It's, It's miraculous. You'd never believe it. Until you experience yourself. You'd never believe that this is how children respond. But there's something attractive about a person who's willing to lovingly discipline another person for their betterment, for their growth. We also see in this God's patience. Although the author is rambling, he's Circular, he's not linear in thought. He doesn't have a rational argument necessarily toward God. He goes up, goes up and down. He bats a bunch of emotional ideas around in his head. God is not scared of him. God is not afraid of this. God is patient. He understands that the author has sinned. He understands all these things and yet he's just quietly listening to what this author is saying. This is here, my prayer, O Lord. And I want to continue to end, hopefully, because I think we can. Because the good news of Jesus Christ allows us to be hopeful at the end. Because the reason why we can even approach God, the reason why God can hear our prayer is because actually the person who disciplines us is also the person who paid the price for our sins. God revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. That Jesus is the full revelation of of God to us. And that his life and his death both showed us how to live life and lived a perfect life in order that by believing in him, we may receive everything that he has earned. It is the, it's the good news. It's the news for everyone in every situation. Not only, not only that, but because God did not wait in heaven and just say, well, at some point I'm just going to show my people what I'm like, he came to us in the form of Jesus. 
to live life on the earth, to experience what it meant to feel silence, to feel pain. He was disciplined by his own father for our sake. He was obedient to his own father in spite of our disobedience. And he actually says, the same writer in Hebrew says, now we have someone who knows what it means to be human. And so our empathizer is also our Savior. That's why we lift Jesus up so much. The same one who saves us empathizes with us. The same one who judges our sin empathizes with us and saves us. And so we have something that the author in the text never had, and that is clarity on God. You know, the author in the Hebrew author would have not understood yet that God would come to him and would die for his sins, and that by believing in him, he could have eternal life. That was still kind of foggy to the original writer of this, but we don't have that fogginess. We have clarity. That's why we have an empty cross. That's our symbol of clarity here. God came to us. God heard our prayer. And so no matter how much we face silence, no matter how much we feel small, no matter how much we have to hear that, no matter how much we're disciplined by God, no matter how much God has to be patient with us, we have a God who has revealed himself fully to us. And yet there's going to be, there's also the promise of more revelation. That one day, all of this will make sense. It's the promise of heaven. It's a promise of eternal life with Jesus. It's a rich, full understanding. And so this morning as we, you, you can tell even my tone is just a little bit quieter, a little more reflective, I'll call the band up. And let's take the next moments in songs, regardless of whether how fast and how slow they are. Let's take this opportunity to reflect on our own lives. To do an inventory, so to speak, of what's going on in our hearts. To not miss a chance that God is teaching us something even here this morning and has been teaching us here this morning. It's our tradition that we celebrate two elements of what we would call the Lord's table or the Eucharist. It depends on your tradition. Ultimately, this is symbolic of two things that are very important to us. The bread symbolizing the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's what he said. That Take this bread, this is my flesh, and eat it. What he was saying is, I was here. I was embodied. God was not just a spirit. He was a person on this earth embodied in Jesus. But he didn't just live a good life for us. He didn't just live as an example. He wasn't just an empathizer. He was also a savior. And in order for the forgiveness of sins to happen, the, the, the scriptures say, the Bible say, that somebody has to shed blood. In other words, this is God saying, somebody has to pay for this. That's what a good God and a good judge would do. Somebody has to pay the penalty. But the good news is, is that we don't have to pay the penalty. Jesus did. And he hung on a cross. And he bled. And so the, the cup 
the wine, the juice is symbolic of the blood that he shed for you and I so that we would have new access to the Father and new access to the Spirit of God who could speak to us and the freedom to worship God like we had never worshipped God before, the freedom to know God, the freedom for clarity on who God is. And so as we partake, would you consider these things? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have not you have not stayed in the comforts of heaven. You have not told us we need to just work harder and pursue you more in order to get in touch with you. But you have said, I have come to you. And Jesus, there are some here that feel distant from you this morning. My hope is that your Holy Spirit, Father, would come in such a way as to remind all of us that you are here with us. And as we partake, and we even recognize that we are sinful people and that we do not deserve this in any way and we could not earn this in any way, as we partake, maybe we feel your grace upon our lives. That you have wiped away all of our transgressions, all of our sins, You've taken care of our guilt. You've taken care of everything that is necessary for a relationship with you. And so may we enjoy partaking in the table that you have set before us, Jesus. And in your name I pray.